Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. The Old Testament book of 1 Kings and chapter number 11. The book of 1 Kings and chapter number 11. We're continuing and finishing up two more messages tonight and Wednesday night. Sorry, Wednesday night and one more after that of this life and ministry of Solomon. We've spent a lot of time to examine Solomon and watched as God had presented to him wisdom. God had appeared to him two different times. God blessed him with finances and he built so many things. We watched as God truly worked in Solomon's life. But about 20 years into it, things begin to slip in Solomon's life. And we watched together that it wasn't the women that was the downfall of Solomon. We saw that before anyone ever has a public fall, it starts with a private failing. That before anyone gets caught up in some public sin, it begins with them walking away from God. Step by step by step. God always leads us step by step. The walk that we have is step by step by step. And that the Bible gives a principle all throughout God's word. Light obeyed produces more light. Light disobeyed produces more darkness. It started as God had blessed him and that he began to desire finances and begin to even crave the finances, even charging for people to hear the wisdom that God had given him. We saw that that step led to another step of disobeying God's law, dealing with chariots and horses. And we saw that even though it was a small little sin that Solomon violated, and because he violated that small sin and no lightning struck him and no buildings collapsed and no signs in the sky, it emboldened him to take another step away from God and another step away from God, and another step away from God. And we watched this progression that he had private failings that ended up to a public fall. And even this morning as we had saw that Solomon loved many strange women, the emphasis is not the women, but the idea of strange. The word strange doesn't mean that they're cross-eyed or the faces are all warped, but it carries the idea of something that doesn't belong to them. It carries the idea of something that's foreign, something that's exotic, something that is different. And our flesh always craves something different. It wants something new. It wants something that doesn't belong to us. And as he gave into the flesh, the flesh became stronger. And he gave into the flesh and the flesh became stronger. And until he was at the place where the flesh was so strong, he couldn't win any spiritual battles. And he was easily enticed to go serve little G gods. Now, if that was it, that would be bad enough. However, we're going to see tonight that this is going to have consequences that are going to spread kingdom-wide. With that, turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of 1 Kings in chapter number 11. The book of 1 Kings chapter 11, and notice with me in verse 14. 1 Kings chapter 11, starting at verse 14, the word of God says this. And the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad the Edomite, and he was of the king's seed in Edom. For it came to pass when David was in Edom that Joab the captain of the host was gone up to bury the slain after he had smitten every male in Edom. For six months did Joab remain there with all of Israel until he cut off every male in Edom. That Hadad fled he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him to go into Egypt, Hadad being yet a little child. 
And they arose up out of Midian and came to Paran. And they took men with them out of Paran. And they came to Egypt under Pharaoh, king of Egypt, which gave him a house and appointed him victuals and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him to wife, the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tephanes, the queen. And the sister of Tephanes bare him uh, Gurnabath, his son, who Tephanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Gurnabath was in the Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. And when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the captain of the host, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said unto him, but what hast thou lacked with me that behold thou seekest to thine own country and he said nothing Howbeit, let me go in my wise and God stirred him up another adversary Rezin the son of Elida which fled from his lord Hadazar king of Zophath and he gathered men unto him and became a captain over the band when David slew them of Zovath. And they went to Damascus and dwelt therein and reigned in Damascus. And he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon. Beside the mischief that Hadad did, he abhorred Israel and reigned <coughs> over Syria. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the Ephraelite of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zerah, a widow woman, even he lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the cause that he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built Milo and repaired the breaches of the city of David his father. And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man, that he was industrious he made him ruler over all charge of the house of Joseph. And it came to pass that at the time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, that the prophet Ahijah, the Solom uh, Shilomite, found him in the way. And he clad himself with a new garment, and they too were alone in the field. And Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him, and rent it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take thee ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and will give ten tribes to thee. But he shall have one tribe for my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel." because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and Kikamish, the son of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the children of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do that which is right in mine own eyes, and to keep my statutes and my judgments as David his father. Howbeit, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him a prince all the days of his life for David my servant's sake, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it unto thee, even the ten tribes. And unto his son will I give one tribe that David my servant may have a light always before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen to put my name there. And I will take thee and thou shall reign according to all that thy soul desireth and shall be king over Israel. And it shall be if thou will hearken to all that I command thee and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, then I will be with thee and build thee a sure house as I built for David and will give Israel unto thee. And I will for this afflict the city of, uh, seed of David, but not forever." And if you're in the habit of marking things, are, let's hit verse 42. And Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam. And Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt unto Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, will you mark a phrase that we find in the book of 1 Kings in chapter number 11? The book of 1 Kings chapter number 11, and there's a phrase that's repeated all the way through this passage, but if you don't mind, mark this passage here, the book of 1 Kings in chapter number 11. And notice with me uh, that phrase in verse 14, 
adversary unto Solomon. Adversary unto Solomon. And with the Lord's help, we're going to examine this as it's repeated over and over, these different adversaries that had been raised up. The adversary unto Solomon. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you today, we're just asking that you would help us to build upon this Bible knowledge, to be able to discern what you were doing and why, what is going on, and how we can apply it to our own lives. We thank you for how you open up the scripture and that we can trust you. And as we come up to you again, we're asking that you would open up your word, that you would do a work, that you would guide and direct even my own thoughts and my own heart, my own desires for the purpose that you could use it for your own purpose to draw your people close to you and that you would do a work. Lord, we do love you and ask that you have perfect reign in our hearts tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Now when Solomon had started off ruling in the kingdom, he started off right. He was very much blessed of God. God appeared to him twice. God had blessed him with wisdom, blessed him with fame and influence, based him with finances. So many things were going right. In fact, the Bible had mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 4 that during Solomon's reign, the early part of Solomon's reign, that there was neither adversary nor a current, nor evil a current. Now this carries the idea that there was nobody bothering Solomon. Remember when we had talked about Solomon's building projects, that one of the things that was necessary to, to have an environment to build properly was not to have enemies. Instead of trying to defend or repair the breaches, what you could do is with peace, you could build up in your life and build up in the kingdom. And Solomon had this freedom for a while. But then Solomon began to slide away from the Lord. And because of this, God began to stir up adversaries to Solomon. Now may I also say that the adversaries were not meant as a punishment as much as they were for correction for chastisement. The purpose of all of this is that God wanted to bring Solomon back to himself, to bring Solomon to the place where Solomon would repent, where Solomon would come back and take the steps to the Lord. That was the idea here that God had already had prepared. And that's an interesting thing. Remember, we have talked about in times past that God is always previous. And what you're going to see is that each of these three adversaries God had prepared them in case Solomon did fail, in case he did mess up. He already had these three adversaries on standby, ready to go. Again, God had warned Solomon directly in person, don't follow other gods. Well, with that warning, trying to tell Solomon, God had already previously prepared these people to be at the right place at the right time for the purpose of trying to bring Solomon back to himself. God is always previous. Now something else that we understand as we start getting ready to dive in the text is that Solomon is the one who set up the environment for adversaries to form. That if Solomon had been close to the Lord, if Solomon hadn't surrendered to sin, if Solomon was not weakened by sin, and had the presence of God, there was no way these adversaries could stand and establish themselves. So Solomon's the one who set up the environment. Solomon's the one who set things up. If you could allow a small little segue, that there are times that people will talk about how, how um, satanic forces, demonic forces, spiritual forces can plague people. And we understand that a Christian cannot be possessed. Because once you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you're full. Nothing else can get into there. However, they can be oppressed. And part of the oppression that is set up in a spiritual realm is because people invite it to come in. There's an old vampire legend that said vampires cannot come into someone's house unless they are invited. We understand that spiritual forces are the same thing. That we invite them to come in by movies, television, shows, books, all of these other things. We bring in this stuff, we invite those forces, and then we wonder how come we have an environment that's a spiritual warfare in our own homes. Well, people can also set up an environment of antagonistic, of, of adversaries in our own lives. 
when we are not careful with ourselves, when we are surrendering ourselves to sin, when we are giving up to the flesh, what happens is that around us, we set up an environment where adversaries can begin to thrive, where they can establish themselves and set up a base to continue to work within us. We understand that this is even tied into the spiritual realm. The Bible, let's turn there, hold your finger here, turn with me if you don't mind to the book of 2 Corinthians going off script, but I believe this could be a help. Notice with me, 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter number 10. We're coming back to 1 Kings 11, so don't lose your place. But we're covering this principle that we can set up an environment in our own lives for adversaries to plague us. Not just physical um, adversaries, but spiritual adversaries. Notice with me the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and notice with me in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through the pulling down of strongholds. What's a stronghold? A stronghold is a castle or a fortress. Notice this is not a physical fortress, but this is a spiritual fortress that has been set up in our own life. Do you know, according to the Bible, that you can give ground to Satan? That means you just surrendered the ground. You said, here you go, you could have it. We could surrender it by pride. We could surrender that ground by bitterness. And we could surrender that ground through materialism. Now, once Satan has that ground, he could start to begin to build a fortress in our life, a stronghold. So let's take bitterness. We have someone that we refuse to forgive. We've given that ground to Satan. We've just surrendered it. He has it. He owns it now. Now he begins to use our thought life. In fact, notice the next verse, verse five, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So let's go back to our illustration. Satan has that ground. Now we still refuse to forgive someone. So that thought is not taken captive. It's now imagine in your mind a spiritual brick placed down. And then we have another thought that we don't surrender to Christ. We still have that bitterness towards someone and another brick and another brick. And what happens is that we keep handing spiritual bricks to Satan until he builds a fortress. Then you look at the castle. I don't know if you've ever seen a real life castle, but they're pretty impressive, especially when you're standing and looking up. And if you can imagine in people's lives, they've given this ground over. Satan has now built a nice fortress and castle. And we look up and say, how can I get rid of this in my life? It just seems too much. Now that the castle is set up, then from that castle, Satan now can begin to send other things in our life. He could start doing depression. He could start sending anger problems. He could start sending other spiritual problems and things that begin to plague our life from that fortress. How did he get there? We set up an environment for that enemy to get established. And once that enemy is established, it becomes our adversary continuing to plague us. This spiritual concept is exactly what happened in the book of 1 Kings chapter number 11. Turn back to 1 Kings chapter 11. Let's cover the history part of this. Solomon, when he was strong, there was no way an adversary could be established within the kingdom. Remember that the queen of Sheba came and not only did she see the half was never been told, she said that because she watched Solomon's servants, that they were genuinely happy. They were glad. They weren't just paid for good service. They were glad to serve Solomon. And as she looked at all of his servants and explored and did everything, she goes, your kingdom is happy. This is amazing. I've never seen the like. Most people complain about their jobs, not your servants. Most people seem to be bitter against the ruler, not here. This is amazing. There's something different here. There's no way an adversary could get established why Solomon was strong in the Lord. But when Solomon was weakened because of sin, 
And he lost the presence of God. And he began to serve these other little G gods. He set up an environment where these other adversaries would begin to get established. And as they got established, they began to plague the kingdom. Let's examine these three adversaries that the book of 1 Kings chapter number 11 mentions. The very first adversary we see is Hadad the Edomite. Hadad the Edomite. Notice with me in verse 14. And the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon. Hadad the Edomite, he was of the king's seed in Edom. Now, it goes and tells the story that when David was the king, he went and was trying to uh, destroy the enemies of the surrounding kingdoms, which would include Edom. And he sent Joab. Remember, we did a whole character study on Joab, David's faithful murderer. And uh, you can imagine, all right, Joab, I want you to go kill everyone in Edom. Yes, sir. And just went, and he went to start cleaning house. And he started to kill everyone. The Bible mentions that, that here Joab did his best in six months' time to kill every male in Edom. Well, Hadad, as a small child, was sent out of the kingdom of Edom to try to save his life. He landed inside of Egypt, and Pharaoh kind of adopted him, and he began to grow in favor. Pharaoh began to say, hey man, this is like a second son, so much that he allowed Hadad to marry inside of the family. But Hadad had a bitterness of his own. He hated David, and by default, he hated Solomon. He wanted to see them ruined. And so he put his ear out. And when he heard that David died and hear that Solomon died, he said, man, can I go back? I want to go harass them. And the Pharaoh tried to talk him out of it. No, 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 no. We would imagine that there was a little bit of time going on. But as soon as Solomon began to slip, Hadad was able to convince Pharaoh, let me go back. Let me go harass them. Let me show them what, what to do. Let me show them how Solomon was not the right person after all. And God had set up this principle, had set up this person, had him in waiting. So as soon as Solomon had slipped up, Hadad was able to come in and begin to harass the kingdom. If you don't mind, there's a second person that we want to touch base on. And this is a man by the name of Rezin. By the name of Rezin. Notice with me in verse number 23. And God stirred, up, or stirred him up another adversary. Rezin, the son of Elida, which fled from his lord Hadazar, king of Zobath. And he gathered men unto him and became a captain of the band when David slew them of Zobath and went to Damascus. Now, if you're not familiar, Damascus is going to be the capital of Syria. And this is going to be an important event. So David, once again, he's trying to get rid of the enemies, goes to Syria. And in Syria, they have an adversary that was able to escape. And he reigned in Damascus. And he's watching over Solomon. Now Solomon technically for a while actually had influence over Damascus and Syria. So that Damascus and Syria said, Solomon, whatever you want, we'll obey you. Well, as soon as Solomon become, began to become morally corrupt, immediately some of the outside kingdoms wanted to rebel. And one of the strongest kingdoms was Syria, whose kingdom was Damascus. And verse 25, and he was an adversary to Solomon all the days of Solomon. Beside the mischief that Hadad did, he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. Now, <clears throat> this is going to be important. We could see that now Hadad, the Edomite, and <clears throat> Rezin are going to start working in concert. That Hadad is going to plague Solomon. Rezin is going to plague Solomon. And these two are going to kind of work together. To the mischief that Hadad did. That we're going to see that um, Rezin is also. 
hates Israel and he wants to destroy Israel. He set up this environment. By the way, if you follow Bible history and history altogether, Risen and Hadad are going to be names that are going to be repeated. Why? Because people said, oh, I'm Hadad the second. I'm Hadad the third. I'm Ben Hadad, the son of Hadad. And they're going to say, this is the guy who was able to uh, defeat Solomon and make him there. I want to be named after him. Rezin, the same thing. You're going to see his name repeated as people say, I'm the son of Rezin. I'm going to be some variation of Rezin. These two people are going to become so famous that people are going to name themselves after them because they're, they're going to be the symbols of trying to get rid of God's people, the symbols of the status, let's destroy Israel, that the banner is going to be waving for the next forever years. All because Solomon set up an environment that was going to plague Israel. Solomon did this to himself. Now, at any time, Solomon could have said, God, I need your help. At any time, God, I messed up, and I, it's clear that I messed up. I'm the one who set up this environment. But isn't it amazing that we're in the midst of that? It's hard to imagine that it's our fault. It's always someone else's fault. And he was blinded to it. But at any time, he could have went back to God and said, God, help me to get things right. Help me to fix this. Help me to solve this. And God would have, and he could have been reestablished once again. Which now comes to the third, and may I say the most important of these adversaries. And what's amazing in here is that we've said the statement that Solomon is the one who set up this environment. That statement is is no truer than after the story of Jeroboam. Notice with me as we're introduced to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Notice in verse 27, uh, verse 26. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the Ephraite of Zerida, Solomon's servant. So Jeroboam is going to start off as Solomon's servant. He's going to be at the place where Solomon trust and put so much favor into Jeroboam. Notice with me. His mother's name was Zerah, a widow woman, and he lifted up his hand against the king. So we're getting a summary statement. Verse 27. And this was the cause that he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built Milo. Now remember, Milo is the defenses around the city of Jerusalem. We had spoke about that, about Solomon's building uh, projects. Solomon built Milo, and he repaired the breaches of the city of his father David. And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man that he was industrious, he made him ruler over the charge of the house of Joseph. Now, this is important. Notice this. He was over the house of Joseph. The, Joseph, his uh, lineage was split into two, two lines. You remember? Ephraim and Manasseh. Now Ephraim is the biggest of the 12 tribes in land size and in population and may I say pride and ego as well. The Ephraimites were always known for pride and so often because of Ephraim was the leader of the other 10 tribes that Ephraim and Israel are going to be interchangeable from this point on. This idea. So Solomon sees this young man and says, wow, this is a young man who knows what he's doing. He's smart. He's industrious. He works well with people. I'm going to delegate and I'm going to put him in charge of pretty much of all what is going to later become the northern kingdom. I'm going to let him administrate and rule over there. I could trust this young man and he puts him in charge. This is going to set it up because we know during the divided kingdom, the very first king of the northern kingdom is Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. That Solomon trained him. Solomon put him in charge. Solomon gave him authority. And Solomon let him get to know the people. Now, delegating is not a bad thing. We're not hitting Solomon for that. It is Solomon's mistakes that force this young man to a place of an adversarial position. Notice as it goes on, verse number 29. And it came to pass that the time that Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilamite, 
found him in the way. And he clad himself with a new garment and the two were alone in the field. So it tells the story. And this is, by the way, in the timeline that Solomon had just been told by God that because he served these other little G gods that God had enough and that Solomon, I'm going to take the kingdom and I'm going to rip it in two. I'm not going to do it during your time, but during your son's time, I'm going to take the kingdom and rip it in two. So as Solomon is being told this, God sends a prophet Ahijah to come walking with Jeroboam. Jeroboam, hey, and Jeroboam, hold on a second. And he puts on a cloak around Jeroboam. You can imagine Jeroboam kind of being surprised to go, uh, what's going on here? And then the uh, prophet says, they walked and talked for a little bit. And then the prophet stops and says, hold on a second. And he takes the cloak and he rips it into 12 pieces. Then he takes 10 pieces and said, here you go. Okay, what, what's going on here? And the prophet explains that because Solomon had disobeyed, that God was going to rip the kingdom into 12 pieces. He was going to give 12 or 10 pieces to Jeroboam and the other two. It's technically one because one tribe had got swallowed up and disappeared inside of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and gave it to Solomon. Solomon gets one and uh, Jehoshaphat's going to get 12. Or not Jehoshaphat, Jeroboam is going to get 10 pieces. Solomon is going to get one. So Jeroboam's going, okay, well, this is nice. Well, that was nice until Solomon heard about it. Again, the proper response for Solomon was to get right with God. However, let's not get right with God. Let's get rid of this presumed threat. And so he went to go after Jeroboam. Now, God tells something special to Jeroboam. Notice with me in verse number 37. And I will take thee, so God is going to take Jeroboam, and thou shall reign according to all that thy soul desireth, and shall be king over Israel. And it shall be if thou, Jeroboam, will hearken to all that I command thee, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did that I will be with thee and build thee a sure house as I built for David and will give to Israel to thee. Now this is a powerful statement that God sent a preacher, told him years before it happened what was going to happen and gave him the promise that if all you have to do is obey the Bible and I will establish you just like I did David. I told David that he would have someone to rule from his thing forever. I'm going to allow you to have a kingdom just like that. That's going to rule. All you have to do is obey my commandments. All you have to do is do what I say. All you have to do is establish a kingdom based off the word of God. So now it's set up. Solomon hears about this. And he goes after Jeroboam. Notice with me in verse 40. And Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam. Now, again, Solomon is very much in the wrong. All he hears is that there's a threat to his kingdom. Let's get rid of the threat. His proper response is, oh, wait, God is sending preachers to tell him, maybe I should listen to what God's saying and try to get right. But nope, he tried to kill Jeroboam. Now, if you're being chased and you're, you're right, and someone's chasing you when you're right to punish you, to kill you, is it easy to get a little bit of bitterness? Yeah. So now he was all right. He worked for Solomon. He was Solomon's right hand. But now that stupid good for nothing guy betrayed me. He tried to kill me. I want to destroy him and I hate him. And by the way, as you have bitterness in your own life, you're not going to have God's presence in your life. And so now he sits in Egypt. He sits with Shishak, who is the pharaoh of Egypt during that time. And he is waiting. Once again, he's waiting on the wings. He's waiting for Solomon to die. As soon as Solomon dies, Solomon's son Rehoboam now is in charge. Jehoshaphat is going to come back. Or, <coughs> sorry, not Jehoshaphat. Forgive me, Jeroboam. There's so many J names. Forgive me. Jeroboam comes. And says, Rehoboam, how are you going to rule the kingdom? Now, at this time, Solomon had started off ruling well. Now, he begins to enslave people and forces them to work. 
And instead of the kingdom being happy, they're now being forced to labor and work all because Solomon's not right with God. When you're in a position of power and you're not right with God, it is easy to abuse the power. And once you start abusing the power, it's easier to abuse the power even more. Till now he's enslaved people. So Jehoshaphat or Jeroboam comes, he gathers up Israel and he goes, remember me, I'm going to speak for you. All right, Rehoboam, how are you going to rule? Are you going to lessen the rules? Are you going to give us more freedom? Are you going to allow us to have a happy kingdom? Rehoboam, how are you going to rule? Well, Rehoboam being a punk kid with no wisdom says, hey, let me go ask my advisors. Okay, nothing wrong with asking advisors. He asked all of the advisors during Solomon's reign, the older men, hey guys, um, what should I do with this? And they said, listen, if you go ahead and lower the restrictions, give people more freedoms, and let them be happy, they'll follow you forever. Oh, that sounds good. Well, let me go to my buddies. My buddies who are still new and don't have any life experience and still punk kids and entitled people. Hey, what do you guys say? Listen here, you don't let him speak to you that way. You tell him that Solomon was a big dictator and you're going to be worse and he needs to fear you. And Rehoboam says, I like that. I want people to fear me. I want people how great I am. So he goes, Jeroboam, I'm going to be worse on you than Solomon ever was. Jeroboam said, okay, you guys heard him. Not it. We quit. We're leaving. And now there was a little civil war. Jeroboam now is the king of the northern kingdom. And Rehoboam is left with just Judah all by himself. You understand, even that could have been fixed. Rehoboam could have chose wisely and Jeroboam would have, wouldn't have been able to rebel. So now we have the thing. God told Jeroboam, if you rule according to the Bible, if you go according to the Bible, then guess what? I'll bless you. So now it's all on Jeroboam. What's he going to do? Is he going to follow the Bible? Well, as the kingdom is divided, there's a problem. The holy city to worship God properly is in Jerusalem. And that's in the southern kingdom. That means that once a year, if people are going to obey the Bible, they leave my kingdom and go to the southern kingdom. What happens if they like it better? What happens if they see that kingdom and say, I want to live by Jerusalem? And he says, I can't have this. Well, the good thing is, is that people don't know their Bible because of uh, how Solomon reigned in the last 20 years. People don't know their Bible. So you know what? I got a plan. Hey, people, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. I've made you two golden calves. And these are the calves who led you out of Egypt. You guys remember that? These are the calves that led you here. And you, we're going to set one in the southern border and one in the top border. And it doesn't matter where you at. You can have easy access to go ahead and worship God however you want. And because we don't want people to be memorize the Bible because people don't know the Bible, let's erase the old holidays and let's make our own holidays. That way, you know, we worship God however we want and we'll borrow some of these uh, pagan practices and mix them in and people like that anyways. Let's, let's do that. Oh, you know what? We don't need the Levites. The Levites know the Bible. So you know what? Let's not use the Levites. Hey, you know what? Look at all these homeless people. Hey, you want a job? You're not the priest. You're going to teach people how to worship these golden calves correctly. Well, the Levites didn't like that. So they all went to the southern kingdom as well as anyone who loved the Bible. They went to the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom is left with a false priesthood, false holidays, two false little G gods that people are saying are Jehovah God and the attitude that you could worship God however you want as long as it's done in Jesus' name. And it set up an environment where from then on that whenever God is angry with a king, he says that he followed in the steps of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. For the rest of Israel's history, this is going to be the watermark. Are they worse than Jeroboam? This is how bad God hates it. God's upset that they followed in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Well, the kingdom is sort of established, but it's established in an awful way. That the northern kingdom had 18 kings 
Every single one of them were evil. Until God finally had enough and destroyed the northern kingdom of Samaria and Israel in 722 BC with the Assyrians coming and destroying them. All of this because Solomon created an environment for these adversaries to come and establish themselves. Now as we go back to ourselves, we can set up an environment within our own lives our own spiritual lives to have adversaries to build a base, to establish themselves, and to begin to plague us. Or we can say, Lord, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to depend upon you, and I'm going to do what's right, and I'm going to follow after you. And when we have the presence of God, and we're following after God and obedient to him, these adversaries cannot be set up. You understand it's dependent upon our actions. God is willing to help us. These adversaries are not there to punish and plague us as they are to remind us that we need the Lord and try to bring us back. So may I ask you, in your life, do you have an environment in your own personal life and the immediate surrounding area around you is it one that could be categorized with a piece of God? Could it be categorized like Solomon's early reign where the servants are happy and the people are content and they're moving forward and having the blessings of God? Or have you set up an environment like Solomon in his later years that adversaries are plugged up? That it seems like you're in a warfare in your own household. A warfare with those immediately around you. And that you're constantly being plagued. And you're constantly having these adversaries. And they're doing what they can to take what they can from you in your life. We can have the blessings of God. Maybe perhaps instead of blaming the adversaries. And looking around and they're not being fair to me and they're not right. Could it be that there's something in your life that needs to be fixed? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're spiritual through the mighty, through the pulling down of strongholds. God can give you victory in your life, but we have to start by confessing that we set up an environment for those adversaries to be established. We set up an environment to allow that spiritual warfare in our own lives to be picked up. We pick where the spiritual battle is going to be at. We know that we're in a spiritual battle. Wouldn't it be better if we're fighting in someone else's backyard rather than having it in our own yard? We pick where the battle lines are. Could it be that it is our mistakes, our disobedience to the Lord, our walking away from God and starting to serve these little G-gods that we set up an environment for the adversaries to establish and begin to harass us. What do I do, preacher? Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Notice with me, get a good running start in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. We understand people are not our enemies. You know, in Solomon's time, that could have been said, it was not Rezin, it was not Hadad, it was not Jeroboam that was Solomon's enemy. It was a spiritual problem with his own life that set this up. And that beating Rezin or beating Hadad did not solve his problems. The problem was is that he had a spiritual problem that needed to be handled. Verse number four, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, meaning you don't pick up a sword and fight this battle. You pick up a spiritual sword, you go to God and his power, but they're spiritual weapons, not carnal weapons, not physical weapons, but mighty through God through the pulling down of strongholds. Notice God can pull down those fortresses in our life. You cannot, they're too big for you, but God can. And it comes as we obey him and surrender to him and allow him to get the victories. How do I do that preacher? Verse five, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. 
Now, all day we've had a theme from Sunday school to Sunday morning to now. What is the theme? We either do things God's way or we think we have a better plan. This is the idea of exalting itself against the knowledge of God. Do we do it God's way or do we think we have a better plan, a better way of doing it, that we know better than God? We have to start this idea, I don't know better with God. I don't have a better plan. Maybe I should do it the way that God said to do it in the first place. The battleground is in our minds. This is where it's going to be won and fought. Casting down imaginations of every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You develop the habit of taking your thoughts. Should I think about this? Yes or no. Would this honor Christ? Yes or no. If it does not, it says take captive. This word captive is where we get our word capsulate. If you can imagine that you put it into a capsule, you capture it and then you toss it away. If this is not a thought that I should have. Now, <laughs> people can visualize things. Let's imagine, and this is what I do. You could steal it or use your own thing. Let's say that I'm thinking of something that I should not think of. Now, I'm not saying that we have perfect minds. I'm saying, what do you do with the thoughts that come in? If I have a thought that's not right, what do I do with it? What I personally do is I imagine taking that thought and rolling it up in a piece of paper like a ball and throwing it in trash. I visualize that. I picture me throwing away that thought. This is that idea here. You judge every thought. Should I think this way? Yes or no. I take it captive and I will put it in, in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a thought I should have. Toss it. This is not a thought I should have. Toss it. This is a thought I should have. Let me keep this. Let me dwell on this. The thing whatsoever is lovely, whatsoever is true, whatsoever things are good report. Think on these things. The Bible gives us instructions about what we're supposed to think on. Then verse number six. And having a readiness to revenge all disobedience. When your obedience is fulfilled. What we see here is that we have to be willing to go back and put revenge on our former disobedience. So many times people sweep things under the rug. Well, that's over and done with. I'm going to go ahead and move on. You need to go back if you haven't confessed your sin. Now, I'm thankful that once we confess our sin, it's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The problem is, is that we like to stack up sins bury it in the closet, put it somewhere. We have unconfessed sin. Partly is because we don't like to admit that it's our fault. We have to be honest with ourselves. I'm the one who set up this environment. It's not so-and-so's fault. It's my fault. It's not their fault. It's my fault. And I need to revenge all disobedience. I need to go back and say, I'm the one who set up this environment. By the way, an environment is not one sin. You've set up a habit of sins in your life to create an environment. I need to go back and admit that what I've done in the past that stemmed all of this is wrong and this has been wrong on top of it and this is wrong. I need to revenge all disobedience. And now I'm trying to help you. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to have a good spiritual shower, a nice spiritual scrubbing. And it starts with us going back and say, I'm the one who created this environment. If we would just finally get honest with ourselves, you would have a lot more spiritual victories and a lot less spiritual adversaries. Now, this is heavy. I understand this. But I think you're mature enough to handle this. But you are not going to see your adversaries go away until you're ready to revenge all disobedience. Until you're willing to admit that I set up an environment for these people to establish. I set up an environment to allow this spiritual thing to plague me. 
you know what would happen? Is that those people that were praying to get saved or praying to get right, we need to set up an environment for them to get right. Instead of continuing to have an environment for them to be established and to thrive. It starts with us getting thoroughly right and honest about our sins. It was my fault that they are this way. It is my fault for setting up an environment for them to be able to do this. I'm trying to help us now. Solomon set up an environment to allow his enemies to be established. God is able to pull down those strongholds. He's able to make the enemies so they can have no ground to establish themselves any longer. But it starts with us not, forgive the term, praying for them to get right. It starts with us setting an environment for them to get right by us being thoroughly right, fessed up, and admitting we set up that environment. I understand this is heavy. I understand that some people won't be mature, spiritually mature to really grab a hold of this. But for those of you who are, what are you going to do about it? You could be like Solomon and ignore it. It's always someone else that's causing this. Or you could do what God wanted Solomon to do and to come back to him and say, God, I need you. Lord, I did this wrong. And God would have reestablished Solomon in his kingdom forever if Solomon would have been willing to admit that he's the one who set up this environment. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.